Countrywide on ABC Radio. Support businesses are going to go to the wall just like dairy farmers will. We've seen the whole agricultural community come out. Once people leave communities, they don't. They generally don't return. Countrywide. Don't worry about me. Go and speak to your farmers. We're already losing businesses. Get out there and speak to your farmers today. with your jumpers on. Countrywide, the politics of food and farming on ABC Radio. G'day, Kit Mocken here. Great to have your company on Countrywide. And believe it or not, this is the last countrywide of the year as we get ready to take a break for Chrissy. Gee, I don't know about you, but it's really snuck up on me this year. Speaking of Christmas, you're going to hear all about what's going on with the delicious food heading to a Christmas table near you, including a few foods that farmers are actually begging you to eat. They just need to eat a heap of pineapple over summer. And how many pineapples would each person have to eat? Four or five a day. That's a pretty tall order. Just in a tick, you'll get to that story. Also, Tassie, it's often seen as the leader of the pack when it comes to the clean, green energy revolution in Australia. But it's not all smooth sailing for the Apple Isle's largest wind turbine project. The bottom line is if we don't use every available renewable resource, we're just going to sit back and watch the planet cook. That story just around the corner. But first, it's been pretty hard to escape the big news this week. Anthony Albanese even managed to herd all the pollies back to Canberra just to get it over the line. Of course, I'm talking about the energy relief bill that caps coal and gas prices. It's been designed to ease the pressure on households who are coping with soaring energy bills. But food and farming businesses are also set to benefit. The peak body for the nation's cooperatives has welcomed the $12 a gigajoule gas price cap as a just-in-time measure to ensure that Australia doesn't lose more local manufacturing. Melina Morrison is CEO of the Business Council of Cooperatives and Mutuals, which represents meat processors, abattoirs, dairy co-ops and the Masters Butchers Association, as well as food processing businesses. She told Michael Condon that even with the gas price cap, members are still expecting their energy bills to double. Well, it's just a a truth that if you want to have advanced manufacturing, particularly in food and beverage, which is just so important to farm incomes, you know, that value-adding that family farmers in particular rely on, you need reliable energy. You need reliable energy prices, you need reliable uh, workforce and you need a regulatory environment that promotes corporate business diversity, including cooperatives. We need all of these factors to be working together so that we can get back to the great history of food manufacturing that we did so well uh, in decades gone by. So it's something that we, we're trying to revamp these days, but people saying the, the price of energy has doubled for them in the last six months. Oh, the premiums are much higher in some cases where we have members that are direct uh, gas users. Their bills have shot shot up. Um, You know, I can give you one example. An average 135,000 bill per month is now over a million dollars. So, you know, the the price rises are astronomical. Uh, When we think about energy resources, in a way they are the commonwealth. Um, They're assets that are shared. And it would seem that there needs to be some form of equitable reward sharing to apply when prices are high because obviously um, the the energy and resource companies are are gaining, you know, 
from increased profits from you know global commodity conditions which no one is in control of so i think this is all really about what is what is an equitable sharing arrangement whilst these prices are so high surely we don't want uh, value added important food production to go to the wall. So we're talking about the dairy industry, we're talking about uh, meatworks, abattoirs, those sorts of things? Yes, look, we have members in, in the dairy industry, horticulture, meat processing, grain export and marketing. It is a mixed picture. We have, for example, a new cannery that's opening up that's going to serve many farmers in the Lockyer Valley is already thinking about energy diversification. They'll have a methane methane plant which will effectively take them off grid um, so they don't see the sort of future as, as being too alarming but we have other members particularly in meat processing where so much important work is done in the waste stream as well taking waste from butchering and abattoirs out of the waste stream um, it's been absolutely catastrophic for these Australian businesses. And yet the energy companies and coal miners say, oh, you know, that's it'll be distorting the price and uh, reducing our profits, you know, uh, is the wrong way to, we need to have sort of market forces. What's your response to that? Markets are never pure. Uh, we could say that the invasion of Ukraine is distorting prices. What we've got to do is work in a cooperative way between all of the stakeholders um, in our economy to work out what is the best way of sharing the, the upside and the downside. There's obviously an upside for energy companies and for their shareholders of these price high prices, and that is having a downside on domestic Australian-owned businesses and in our sector, particularly in the, in the food and beverage manufacturing. Melina Morrison, CEO of the Business Council of Cooperatives and Mutuals, speaking to Michael Condon there. From the top end to Tassie, countrywide on ABC Radio. Now, you may have heard a few months ago that New Zealand is banning live animal export for good. The ban comes after an awful shipwreck, you may remember. It was the sinking of the Gulf Livestock One ship, which was carrying 600 dairy cows from New Zealand to China when it sank off waters off Japan during a typhoon in 2020. 40 of the 43 people on board have never been found, including two Australians, William Mann Prize and Lucas Order. Now, an ABC investigation has revealed that the owners of the ship had dozens of safety breaches flagged by maritime authorities. Rural reporter Angus Verley spoke with Alison McClement, a producer in the ABC's investigative unit, about the story. The new stuff that we found was the uh, financial situation of the owner of Gulf Livestock One, which is Gulf Navigation Holding out of Dubai. And at the time when Gulf Livestock One capsized in the East China Sea in September 2020, it was, you know, it was more or less insolvent. They'd been in financial difficulties for some time. And we found that sort of, you know, up until that time, I think it was a half a billion dollars they were in debt. So how does the the financial instability of the ship owner relate to the condition of the ship and perhaps why it did sink? I don't really know. It's coincidental that there were so many breaches, like safety breaches and what they call deficiencies on Gulf Livestock 1. I think there was 34 breaches. And it had been 
detained in Broome in 2019 for a number of, I think it was for a number of failures. And up until when the vessel sunk in 2020, had had a number of deficiencies, including those major ones like engine failure. And it failed on the journey a couple of times. That's right. And you've got some communication from the two Australians who were on board and who lost their lives texting back to Australia, back to their friends and families, just reporting on on the, uh, the rickety state of the, the vessel, I suppose. Yes. I mean, I feel so much for the families. It's just that you'd never get any closure of what actually happened to your, you know, your son or your brother. And uh, it's been devastating for them. And I don't know if they quite realised how bad it was when they were, you know, texting and sending photos back to the family. Because you can't, in the, in the vision that you see, it looks bad, but it must have been a lot worse than what it was. You also report on this vessel, you report on the safety issues with it. Uh, it was an old vessel. It was converted from a container carrier. And at the same time, the ship's captain proceeded along its original path and into the path of this typhoon that that eventually sunk it while other commercial vessels in the region deviated from their course? Yes, the Gulf Livestock One was built in 2002 and it was converted to a livestock vessel in about 2015. And I'm not an expert on this, but, you know, maritime experts do say that livestock, when a cargo ship is converted into a livestock vessel, it's not as stable. But why the captain went straight into a typhoon when other, you know, ships went in other directions, I mean, who knows? I don't know if he was directed to go there or who knows? No one's ever going to know. As I mentioned, two Australians were on board, William Mainprize, a stockman from Sydney, and a veterinarian, Lucas Order, from Queensland. You spoke with Lucas Order's parents, and they questioned why so much money and time and effort was spent on the search for Malaysia Airlines Flight 370, but not an equivalent search effort for this ship, which is still yet to be found? It's true. You know, Dr Orders, he was saying that you know, they spend all this money on trying to find planes that have gone down. But when it comes to a livestock vessel with 43 people on board, they just they think the government hasn't been interested at all. And so they're really trying to push for that. But, you know, whether that will happen, it's, you know, it's not in Australian waters. So who knows who can do that? From your investigation and from the people you spoke to, this vessel, Gulf Livestock One, should it have been on the waters? I can't say that. You know, I, I don't know. It definitely had a lot of problems and it should have been checked on a more regular basis, I think. That was Alison McClement, producer in the ABC's investigative unit, speaking with Angus Burley there about that awful story of the Gulf Livestock One sinking two years ago. You're listening to Countrywide. I'm Kit Mocken. A massive Tasmanian wind farm has been approved on the condition that it shuts down for five months a year due to a critically endangered bird. But in a bit of a twist, the owners of Robins Island off the northwest coast of Tasmania say that there is no evidence that the orange-bellied parrots use the island as part of their migration path. The Hammond family run Wagyu cattle on the island, which they've owned for four decades, 
And family member Chauncey Hammond says this is the first time the issue has been raised in many years of discussion about the ASIN wind farm. That came up sort of early in the 2000s when Hydro Tasmania came around and identified our Robins Island as a site that would have that wind characteristics and it made it most unique, probably one of the five or six sites around Tasmania. And so we started having discussions and, and working on it from that point on. So we've been at it, as they say, for a minute. This latest decision came as a bit of a shock to ASIN, I know, who came on board with this wind farm about six years ago as UPC. What does that mean for your family? I think people need to put this in perspective. This is the largest private investment in Tasmania's history. It could be, I should say. It's around $1.5 billion of investment, which is what Tasmania needs, because our understanding at the moment is that hydro doesn't have the additional generation capacity for such things as hydrogens or e-fuels. Um, from us as a family, look, it doesn't interfere with our cattle operation, which obviously is key for us, or we would have never signed up. And it's also really important from a climate change perspective because, you know, our island is low-lying, and with climate change and, and the potential for oceans to increase, um, it could very much affect our island. So we're all about, and have been since the early 2000s, about looking at how we can contribute towards, uh, you know, helping mitigate climate change. What's it been like being kind of at the centre of something that, you know, not everyone thinks about it, but wind farms can be quite divisive topics? Yeah, look, and we understand that. But at this stage, um, you know, we need every available good renewable resource. So this isn't something where we can say, well, let's just stop renewable energy because, you know, we don't like it. There has to be a reason for it. It all comes back to evidence and science. And and certainly we understand people's views might be affected, but, you know, 15 kilometres from where we are, there's Woolnorth wind farms, which the turbines spin and have been since the early 2000s. One of the main points that came out of this, one of the main conditions from the EPA on their approval of this project was hinged on the orange-bellied parrot. Was that surprising? Oh, gosh, Meg. I, I think surprising is an understatement. We really kind of find it, as landowners, we find it unfathomable, let alone as, as you know, the developers in ACN. And, look, the department does what it does. We respect that. But for five years, not a single time was this condition mentioned. It wasn't even brought up. So at the 11th hour, all of a sudden, they talk about shutting down the whole wind farm for five months of the year with what we can't see as any further scientific evidence to substantiate that mitigation matter. Then you say to yourself, okay, well, why hasn't over the last 20 years, why hasn't the EPA and the and the government done more research to determine the migratory patterns. If there's so little information known, this has been going on for a long time. And the OBP National Recovery Plan talks about barriers to migration and movement, which is where wind farms and, and turbines themselves are, are classified. And they say the evidence for the impact is weak and the risk rating is moderate. So how do you apply a sledgehammer to crack a walnut by saying you have to shut it down when you have weak evidence, and a risk rating that's moderate. And our view is, the bottom line is, if we don't use every available re renewable resource, including, like, really high, uh, efficient and high-capacity sites like Robins Island with low environmental impact from what we can see from the actual science, our planet, we're just going to sit back and watch the planet cook when hundreds, if not thousands, of species are going to become extinct. Say so more surveys are done and it is found that these wind far this wind farm is directly in the path 
of their migratory pattern at some point. You know, they, they fly in different spots each year. What happens then? Well, that's the beauty of what ASEAN had put in the development plan is it's an adaptive management. So there would be studies done every day. There would be studies done every migration period. There would be a radio, extensive radio tracking which showed where they were going. One's only ever been seen, and that was back in 2003, 2004. There's absolutely no evidence at this stage that they do fly over. And if they did, what they would do, ASEAN's already offered, is they would be shutting down those turbines in those areas where they were seen until they'd moved away. The EPA has based their decision on the department saying there is a likelihood they fly over the island during migration. They haven't provided any evidence. Certainly, we know they do move up the northwest. Um, What we do find really amazing is that they haven't done more work over the last 20 or 30 years to understand this. Chauncey Hammond, one of the owners of Robins Island, talking to Meg Powell there. And in response to this story, EPA Director Wes Ford has previously told us that the board thoroughly researched and considered the issue. He says it is well documented that Robins Islands is important for the orange-bellied parrot. He said, and I quote, in the seven and a half years that I've been involved as the director of the EPA, This is by far the most significant and comprehensive assessment that the EPA has undertaken. If you'd like to read the rest of his comments, there is a very thorough article on the website by Meg if you want to read a bit more about it. You're listening to Countrywide, across Australia and around the world on ABC Radio. I wonder, will ham be on your Christmas table this year? It's certainly a popular staple and they're proving extra popular this festive season with retailers reporting sales are up as pork prices, in contrast to other meats, remain relatively steady. Megan Hughes has this report. December is always a busy time of the year for Central Queensland butcher Greg Wheelow. And this year, his hams are flying off the shelves. I think that it's actually gone up in interest this year. We seem to have a lot more people coming through the door sorting our own wood smoked hams, yeah. Would you know, like, I guess, um, an approximate difference from previous years? Just the speed of the orders coming in. Like, I'm pretty well, I kept myself to an amount that I can actually cure and smoke in store because there's not enough days in the year. And then from there on, it's just how quickly they get orders put on top of them. With the price of beef and lamb having skyrocketed since 2019, pork is proving to be the protein of choice. The price has remained pretty steady in the past 12 months and is considerably cheaper than alternatives. Mr Wheelow says the price differences are evident in his shop. Pork, as opposed to most of the other proteins, has actually held steady. It hasn't gone up anywhere near as much as your likes of your beef and your chicken and your lamb. And have you found that because of that there's been more people interested? Yeah, definitely. Selling more, a lot more pork, yeah. What sort of products are people going for? Oh, a mixture of everything from your hams that we smoke here in-house and your bacon to your simple chops and roasts. As a retailer, how else have you found meat pricing over the last 12 months? Over the last 12 months, it's sort of held steady. It's gradually gone up a bit. But say over the last three years, a lot of things have actually doubled in price. It's just completely gone mental. And have you found people going away from popular products? Yes and no. Like, your diehard fans of certain cuts will just keep getting it and just fork out the extra money for it. We found that our profit margins have had to halve in a lot of places because we can't see the sense in 
handing all that expense on to the customers because it's just inaffordable to have that meat then. So why is the price of pork not rising? Rabobank Senior Animal Proteins Analyst Angus Gidley-Baird explains. It, it hasn't had the same supply issues that lamb and beef have. Obviously, the dry conditions through 2018-19 led to a big liquidation of stock and the shortage that we've had through 2020, 21 and 22 and the favourable seasons that have meant that people have been aggressively sort of buying and purchasing cattle and sheep and, and that's pushed those prices higher. Pork hasn't gone through the same thing. It's not exposed to the same seasonal movement uh, from a rainfall and pasture availability point of view. So we've seen a little bit more consistent supply. Um, there are starting to be some costs working into that that pork complex now, though. They're a little bit more exposed to the grain price, and we've seen grain prices pick up as a result of Russia-Ukraine situation and shortage in stocks earlier this year in the Northern Hemisphere. So they are starting to see a little bit of cost increase, but generally uh, favourable volumes in the pork market have, have meant that pork prices just haven't seen the, the increase. If we look at the, the year-on-year change at a retail price level, pork is the lowest of all the proteins, even lower than chicken. So the last 12 months have seen beef prices rise 9.3%, lamb prices have risen 5.5%, poultry's risen 86 and pork is only 3.8%. So it's the one that's performing the best at the moment. While the pork price is stable, input costs have risen, according to central Queensland pork producer Laurie Brosnan. You've got your, your big one, your diesel and stuff like that being as nearly record highs and holding, and your power bill as well. At the moment, we're uh, reinvesting in our, our renewables. We're putting in new digester tanks. So we're buying power. We know what it feels like. Well, I truly know how it feels like. All our commodities that come in that we feed the pigs is at record highs or if not very close to it um, you've got your insurance bills that everyone knows that if, you, if you've got a car it's all gone up um, and wages has obviously gone up as well and there was an oversupply for a little while of pork in australia has that managed to even itself out with the higher demand yes it has like covid was a blessing in some respects because everyone learned how to cook again um, and that drove fresh pork up as well or held it a little bit um, it was just the restaurant trade that suffered and that was affecting our sales but coming out of COVID yes it very much like pork is very much on everybody's menu now. Central Queensland pork producer Laurie Brosnan ending that story from Megan Hughes. You're listening to Countrywide I'm Kip Mocken. From the paddock to the plate Countrywide on ABC Radio. So you just heard about a food that Australians want to eat this Christmas, but what about foods that farmers want you to eat so they don't go to waste? Sign me up. Some industries are tipped to face an oversupply of produce this summer, just like avocados and strawberries earlier in the year. So that means that there's plenty of farmers worrying about what to do with their excess products. Producers are now calling on consumers to take up their forks and look for foods in high supply this Christmas, as Ashley Bagshaw reports. A year plagued by floods, fires and droughts has left many producers reeling from losses to their crops. But those who've seen a good season are experiencing a very different type of struggle, with the glutton industries like pineapples and red wine leaving producers worried. North Queensland pineapple grower John Zelenka says an unusually cold winter in Queensland, the state where the majority of the country's pineapples are produced, has spelled trouble for the industry. 
This year we've had an enormous amount of natural flowering to the point of in our smooth leaf it's probably at about 50% and in our hybrids it's probably 80 or 90%. And do you have any idea what's brought on this flowering? I spoke to a couple of people and they seem to think that it was that we had five very cold days in winter and all the planets sort of aligned and this this actually happened, caused it. This is the worst case of natural flowering in the history of the pineapple industry in Queensland. What is the plan going forward as a grower? I'll probably push to try and get even rid of even more in this region. They just need to eat a heap of pineapple over summer. And how many pineapples would each person have to eat? Four or five a day. North Queensland pineapple farmer John Zelenka. Meanwhile, South Australia's red wine sector has been experiencing an ongoing glut and producers are anticipating another tough year in 2023. Managing Director of Taylor's Wines, Mitchell Taylor, says the industry is continuing to struggle to find markets to send product to. Yes, we're seeing quite severe oversupply because we've had the factor with China a couple of years ago, all of a sudden decided to put horrendous tariffs on our wines of 218%. So all this red wine that that needed to be aged that was developed in the vineyards really hasn't found another place to go. So at the time when the tariffs were put on, we actually had an undersupply situation. So I think this vintage coming up vintage 2023 in the new year, we'll really see some big pressures. And unfortunately, a lot of the wineries just don't have capacity with their tanks to take the excess supply into the wineries. So I think we'll probably have to leave a lot of fruit um, out on the vineyard uh, for this season. Australian wine, still the domestic market is our biggest market and it's just, yeah, supporting um, our local producers would be really um, beneficial for everyone. Mitchell Taylor, Managing Director of Taylor's Wines. The avocado industry is also on the verge of another big crop. By 2026, the country's supply is anticipated to be at around 170,000 tonnes more than double the 80,000 tonnes produced in 2021. Sarah Tucker-Bame, an avocado grower in South Australia's Riverland, says while growers may not be seeing a repeat of the glut experienced in 2021, this year's crop is once again looking strong. We had a record crop last year and every growing region in Australia had a record crop, so it was a massive amount of avocados and we expected this year to be a lot lighter than it is. It, the avocados have produced well again <laughs> and, uh, and we're busy, but uh, thankfully the market is better because there's not quite in flux that there was last year with all the other growing regions. It's looking good at the moment. Avocados are looking great for Christmas, so that's exciting. So Riverland House is still in season and will still be in season at Christmas and just after Christmas. And then WA House will also be in the market. And then we've changed from... Hass to lamb hass, which is the slightly bigger hass variety. And then there's the, the gorgeous emu egg reed that comes in as well. Reed has a little bit of a cult following. So if people have had reed, they will know what reed is. Reed is a big sort of round emu egg looking avocado. Lamb hass almost looks identical to a hass, except it's slightly bigger and it has 
like I call them shoulders. So it has like a where the where the stem goes, the shoulders are a little bit wider, I guess, and the house is lamb has is slightly bigger to the house. Sarah Tucker Bame, an avocado grower in South Australia's Riverland, ending that story. And you can read more about that story online on the ABC Rural website. Just search that in your search engine. And that's all we have time for today on Countrywide for today and the year, actually. I'm your host, Kit Mocken. It's been great to have your company. On behalf of the whole team, I really hope that you have a great Christmas and a safe new year. See you in 2023 and bye for now.